Okay, what I'd like you to do is stand with me. We're going to be again in the book of Philippians. A couple more messages from Philippians. This is going to be Philippians chapter 4. And the title of the message is, How Should I Live? In Philippians chapter 4, beginning on verse 2, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always again. I will say rejoice. Let your righteousness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ. Finally, brethren, Whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Heavenly Father, Lord, what a passage, Lord God, what a very great foundation to build our lives upon, how much greater, how much better, Lord God, how much more wonderful would our lives be coming to the end of 2024 if we built our life on these great principal building blocks that you give us here in Philippians 4. Father God, let us sit at your feet, open up our hearts, open up our minds, and really take with us, Lord God, the word that you will give us today. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you have ever seen the movie Braveheart? It's a great movie. It's a chick flick. In the movie, William Wallace, played by Mel Gibson, is about to die, and the woman, the queen that he's with, uh, is pleading, oh, you know, it's terrible, you're going to die, you're going to be killed. And he said these words, every man dies, but not every man really lives. Every man dies, but not every man truly lives. I have found that to be incredibly true throughout my life. My experience is, is most people exist instead of really live. They float through life never really discovering what their purpose is, what the meaning to life is. They drift through life like driftwood floating on the ocean being driven by the tides and the currents and the winds. How should I live? I want you to ask yourself that question today. How should I live? God has given you the life you have as a gift. And really coming to the place where you define how you should live, we'll call it a, a philosophy of life. Finding those principles of truth that you will essentially build your life upon. In Philippians chapter 4, it is probably the most influential chapter on living life that I have found for my life in the entire Bible. It, it truly, when I began to study it and understand it, and as I've lived in it over the course of the last 40 years, it's been enlightening. My, my purpose today, and I always have a purpose when I deliver a message, my purpose today is that you would be inspired, that you would be encouraged to 
become a practitioner of the Word of God. See, in Jesus' day, and go back into the prophets, there's this continuous warning that people were hearers of the Word, but not doers of the Word. And I find that that's true today. Most people, it's just they hear, but they never really practice and do what the Word of God says. It goes in one ear and out the other, and they're gone, never really taking with them what the Word has actually said. Well, these, these are, are incredible life-giving words and very practical words that could be practiced every day in your walk that will bring, that will bring tremendous life to your life. So let's dig in. The first thing, live and work. So in verses 2 and 3, Euodia and Syntyche, two sisters in the church of Philippi, are obviously having difficulty. They're having a hen fight. Okay? And um, Paul here is pleading with them that they would come to a place of agreement and have the same mind. He says in verse 3, And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers. I want you to notice the word labored and workers whose names are in the book of life. The word is sanathaleo in the Greek. It's a picture of laboring. It's a picture of work. They were workers. We're called as Christians to work out our own salvation, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We looked at that a few weeks ago from Philippians chapter 2. We're told to work to live in peace, to work for holiness. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, it says, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Our work in our careers, for most of us, 40 hours a week, maybe 45, 50 hours a week, we spend 40% to 50% of our hours, our living awake hours, okay, every week working. Now you think about this. If you're doing something, 50% of the time of your waking hours, don't you think it's something we should enjoy? I think so. Young people come to me and they'll ask me about their career. And I meet with people every year come the spring and they're talking, they're getting out of high school, I don't really know what I want to do. And we talk about college. We talk about possibly learning a trade. But the main thing that I usually talk about with them is do what you love to do. Because if you're going to be doing something over the course of the next 50 years of your life, find something that you're going to enjoy doing. So we have what's called a work week. Now I'm going to give you an outsider observation of how this looks in most people's lives. And you see if it's true for you. Monday. Dread day. The first day of the work week. There's five more days to go. Five dark Dreary days of work. Tuesday. 
There are still four days to go till the weekend. Oh, it's only Tuesday. Wednesday. Hump day. There's still no smile. There's still no joy. It's, you ever see that stupid camel commercial? It's hump day. Thursday. There's hopium. There's hopium. There's only two more days to go. I think I can make it. I can do it. I know I can. Friday. You count the hours. Seven more to go. Six more to go. Five more to go. Four, three, two. Right at that last hour between four and five, right? It's purgatory. I don't believe in purgatory, but if there was a purgatory, that would be the hour. Looking forward to Saturday, right? Saturday. Right? You, can, you can start to feel, right, that happy juice pumping out of the happy organ, right? That it's Friday, but Saturday's coming. It's Friday, but Saturday's coming because on Saturday, I can do whatever I want. On Saturday, there's no work. On Saturday, I'm free, unless you have kids. That's just another work day. Saturday comes. I can live. It's party time. Woo! Right? Sunday. You're recovering from Saturday. I'm not even talking about if you drink alcohol. I mean, you're just recovering some Saturday from the food. And right, you, got, you still got a smile on your face. You're, you're, you're feeling it. You're here worshiping at Living Word Community Church. Now watch something that happens on Saturday afternoon. Usually around 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock on Saturday afternoon... Reality starts setting in. As the sun's setting and the darkness starts to fall, right? Well, the darkness starts to fall over your life and over your heart because the weekend is weekending. The weekend is ending. And you know what's coming? Monday's coming. Monday morning. You know when that alarm clock goes off? It's Monday. Another, another work week. Let me just stop and say this to you. What a way to live. What a way to live. When you really get down to it, you're only living two out of five days a week. Only living two out of five days a week. The rest, you're just existing, you're enduring, you're, you're, you're surviving, you're not thriving. If you live to be 70 years old, you only spend 20 years actually living. The other 50 were 
kind of just dreading. A lot of people in the church, they look at work as a curse, as do people in the world. That work is, is a curse. And in fact, they'll go to even the point of saying, like, work was something that occurred after Adam and Eve sinned. But if you, if you know the scriptures, in Genesis chapter 2.15, before sin entered the world, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. I want you to notice the word tend. It refers to work. Adam was given work to do in the garden before sin entered the world. Now, after sin came into the world, right, then it became very difficult because when he was tending the ground, as it says in Genesis chapter 3, it took a whole lot of sweat to be able to get the produce and the fruit out of the ground. But work was not something that God cursed the world with. Work was there before, before sin entered the world. You know, when we get to heaven, yeah, there's going to be work to do. There's going to be work to do. I don't think there's going to be any work to do in hell. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 20, verse 3, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Notice the word, again, the word serve. What are we going to do in heaven? Well, in heaven you're going to be worshiping. In heaven, you're going to be fellowshipping. In, hell, in heaven, you're going to be reigning. In heaven, you're going to be resting. And in heaven, you're going to be serving. You're, you're, going, to be, you're going to be working. I want to tell you this. You're not going to be bored in heaven. You will not be bored in heaven. So, you know, you get to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, 22. It gives us a good picture of eternity in heaven. And there they are, right, in the New Jerusalem. Understand. People think, well, I'm just going to be hanging out in the New Jerusalem city. No, no, no. There's a new heavens and a new earth. And there, there are 12 gates in the New Jerusalem. And I believe we're going to have responsibility. The New Jerusalem is going to be home base. Or we're going to be moving out. And there's going to be, I, look, I, I personally think there's going to be multiverse, multi-universes that God has created. Then he's going to give us responsibilities. We're going to be reigning with him. We're going to have responsibilities. And there's going to be work for us to do. We are not going to be sitting on a cloud as fat, chubby little cherubs playing our violins or whatever else that guy is playing with there. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works. We're not saved by works, lest anyone should boast. But notice verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I want you to notice the word workmanship. We are God's masterpiece. We are God's work of art that have been created for good works that God has prepared. God has prepared works for every one of you here today. I am doing the work that God has called me to do, that he has created for me to do. And I am a piece of work. Some of you know. Gina, you know that. right? I am a piece of work. But he has given me responsibilities. He has given me a calling. He has given me a purpose. He has given me works to do, as he has all of you. Work. We were created to work. 
We were created to work and find fulfillment. And look at a definition of work ethic, because we live in a time where work is a really bad word. In fact, work could be attributed to the seven curse words you can't say on television. I can still say them. I won't. But you could add work as the eighth. You go on YouTube and see some of these testimonials. I mean, these kids, these young uh, Z generation and millennials, they put, I mean, they, you got to be out of your mind. Why, why don't you just put out a video that says, I'm a fool, I'm a moron, I'm an idiot, and post it so the whole world can look at it. But they're, they're out there and they're crying. They're crying because they now have to go to work and work eight hours a day. They're crying because they got to travel 45 minutes to where they're working and 45 minutes home, and they don't have any time to do all the things. I mean, it's really sad. I was going to show you. I, I just I didn't even want to put it up there and embarrass those people. I mean, it's just it's sad. Not only that you feel that way, but that you would actually post something like that. Work ethic, a belief in the moral benefits and importance of work and its inherent ability to strengthen character. I believe that. A belief in the moral value of work, often in the phrase, the Protestant work ethic. You know what the, the secret to really finding fulfillment in work, whether it's the work in your career, or it's the work in raising your kids, and the work of changing diapers, and the work in raising those kids, in the Judeo-Christian ethic of the higher escalon of our society. Did you get that? I'm going to write down down here. <laughs> or the ministry work that you do at Living Word or in some mission that you're a part of. Here's a secret. Yeah, Colossians 3, 23 through 24, and whatever you do, you see the word whatever? And whatever you do, do it heartily. Notice, don't do it half-heartedly. Don't give it 10%. Don't give it 50%. Don't give it 90%. Whatever you do, give it 100%. And then notice what the word says, as to the Lord and not to men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. There's a reward coming when we serve the Lord wholeheartedly. When you begin to pour yourself in to the things that you know, you'll begin to enjoy them. You approach things with, with a commitment of excellence. When you see me, when you see me up here preaching, teaching on a Sunday or on a Wednesday or on another day and you see me doing it half-heartedly you see me only only giving maybe 10 or 20 percent I want to tell you something you should need to go to the pastors and the elders of the church because it's time that I need to leave how could you do the work of God half-heartedly and I really do believe with all my heart that that's what, the way it should be with everything we do. I don't want to do anything in a half-heartedly way. Whatever I'm going to do, I want to do it with all my heart. 
work at it with all my heart. Give it the very best. And you know what you would find? Think about this. How much more advanced would you be? How much more money would you be making? How much further would you be in your career? How much better would your marriages and your family and your kids? How much better would your entire life be if you started to just give it your best with everything you're doing? I'm on the phone. This is in my business. I'm on the phone with a uh, group of people from the Chamber of Commerce in New Jersey. And these are basically county leaders of the chamber. And this one guy who is the head of this chamber, he went off on a tirade. And I'm sitting there listening. I mean, he went off on a tirade. He started talking about how he will not hire Z generation and millennials anymore in his business. He's got a company of about 300 people. He will not hire those, those 20, those 20 somethings, those, those early 30s. He will not hire them. He goes, I've had it with them. I've had enough of them. And he goes, you know what I do? I take that position and I hire retired boomers. One gets 20 hours, the other gets 20 hours. So they don't have to pay health insurance. But that's not the only reason why. He said they come early, he goes they work hard, and he goes they'll stay late, and he goes they show up every day. They have a work ethic. I grew up in a generation, let me tell you, who had a work ethic. I was working when I was 12 years old. But that work ethic is dwindled. In the church. It's dwindled in the church. We need to work, and we need to work heartily to the Lord. When you do that, you will find life. You will find life when you really begin to live a life with excellence, and you give it your best. All right, number two, rejoice and live. Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Why do we rejoice in the Lord always? Because the Lord is the unchangeable, the Lord is the immutable, and because everything else changes. Everything changes. The world around us changes. Have you noticed that? Our country is changing. The towns we live in are changing. Our families change. Our marriages change. Our children change. We, as individuals, change. And sometimes, sometimes, change hurts, right? Change hurts. You know the song, right? Stevie Nicks. Well, I've been afraid of changing because I've built my life around you. But time makes you bolder. Even children get older. And I'm getting older too. Oh, I'm getting older too. My wife and I were sitting last night. We were watching a TV show and she was singing that song. It's a very touching song. But you know what? Change sometimes can really hurt. On Friday night before the Christmas party, and it was a great party, great time. Thank you all of you who poured in your hours and time to do it. It was the most, most wonderful Christmas party we've ever had. And um, before I went there, I went up and I was visiting with Vito Savino and May Savino, Lenny, our worship leaders, mom and dad. And May, uh, 
93 years old. She's getting ready to go home to be with the Lord. They've been married over 50 years. And it was beautiful. As Vito, his heart is broken. The love of his life. And let me tell you, they love Jesus. Two great servants of the Lord. At least the human love of his life. She's going to be taken from him. And he's having a hard time with that. And there were the, the kids. Uh, Lenny and Ritter were in Hawaii with um, Ritter's son. But there was Vito and there was Michael and uh, there's some family members and um, Len, Lenny's sister. And they gathered, right? They were there, uh, gathered around the bed to comfort their mother, to love her. But there was, again, pain. Right? It was hard to see that, right, that, that pain of the change. And change happens. And we're all going to go through changes that are painful. The beautiful thing is God never changes. He's always the same. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. His love never changes. His grace never changes. His mercy never changes. His compassion, His holiness, His truth. He's never flaky. He's never flighty. He's never lazy. He's never inconsistent. He's always true to Himself. And He's always there. Someone we can rely on, depend on, and trust. He never changes. He's the infinite, immutable God. The one the one ultimate that you can always rely on because there's nothing in this world you can rely on. And I'll tell you, there's no person in this world you can totally rely on. So he says, build your house upon the rock. Because if you build your house on anything else or anyone else, let me tell you, it's sinking sand. And when the storm hits, you get wiped out. There is joy in rejoicing in the Lord. Number three, be aware and live. Philippians chapter 4, 5, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is right here at hand with you. Look at what it tells us in Psalm 139, verse 7 through 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, by the way, hell, that's Sheol, that's the grave. Behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the outmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the night are both alike to you. It's called the omnipresence of God. God is in all places, at all times. God is everywhere. Now, I want to show you something from Scripture. I want to show you a couple of illustrations of people and some unique things that happen to them. Samson. Notice in, in Judges chapter 16, 20, when Delilah cut his hair and the Philistines were upon him, Samson said, I will go out as before and shake myself free, but he did not know that God had departed from him. He did not know that God had departed from him. He wasn't aware that the presence of God had left him. Now, Samson was a man with a very shallow relationship with God. 
Samson was a man who lived in the flesh. He was, he was, he was driven by lust. I mean, continuous lust. I mean, he, he sees a woman. What does he say to his mother and father? Get her for me. He sleeps with prostitutes. He's shacking up with Delilah. He was a man of a very, he was shallow, lust-driven. And he's a person who's an example of someone who thinks that God is with them when he's not. And that's scary. That's, that's a scary passage. And then there's Jacob. Right? Jacob is on the run, and he comes to Bethel, and there's that wonderful ladder, right? Which is a foreshadow of Jesus. Jacob's ladder. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And here's a person who is in the presence of God, but they're not aware of it. And Jacob is, again, a picture. Jacob's, he's a worldly man. Jacob says to God, if you give me what I want, then I'll serve you. That's a pretty sick way to approach God. It should be, Lord, I'm going to serve you no matter what you give to me. But he's a picture of kind of a, a, a self-centered person. He's running from Esau, his brother. He's worried his brother's going to hunt him down and kill him, so he's distracted. He's living in fear. Fear is dominating his life. Not the fear of God, the fear of man. And so here he is in the very presence of God, and he doesn't realize it. I see people come into this church, they don't realize they're in the presence of God. Come right into this church, and they're, they're oblivious that they're in the presence of God. And then I want to give you one more example, and that, that is Elijah. So Elijah is a man, a great, he's the greatest prophet in Scripture. And he's used to experiencing God in the big, in the miraculous. When, when he prays, the rain stops falling for three and a half years. Then he prays again and it starts to rain. He prays and, and fire comes down from heaven and consumes his altar in the contest with the prophets of Baal. Jezebel, Ahab's wife, Jezebel, she basically takes a contract out on Elijah to kill him. And Elijah's on the run. He's running for his life. He actually prays to God, God, just kill me and take me out of this world. So God brings him to this cave. And I want you to see what happens in verse 11 through 13. Then he said, and this is God saying to him, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. It's like a hurricane. But the Lord wasn't in the, in the wind, in the tornado or the hurricane. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. See, he was used to experiencing God in the miraculous, in the big. God needed to teach him a lesson. He said, yes, I can be in the big but I can also be in the still and quiet. And so it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? I personally most experience God in the quiet, in the still, in solitude. This morning, 
before coming here, I spent three hours just communing with God, being in his word, being in prayer, just going to a quiet place, a place of stillness, where there's no distractions. And where you eliminate the distractions of your mind, and there you can hear from God. And you sense his presence. I think a lot of people, they, they don't experience the presence of God because they just never experience stillness. They can't hear his voice. But he's always there. If you're a true believer, he's there, right? Look at Paul's words in Romans 8, 35-39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. What shall separate us from the love of God? Nothing. But again, to be still, to be aware, that's life-giving. Number four, pray and live. In verses four, I'm sorry, chapter four, verse six through seven, be anxious for nothing. You know what that means? Don't worry. Worry is useless. Worry is feckless. Worry is powerless. Worry is dangerous. Worry causes physical illness and physical problems, and it robs you of the joy of life. Read the studies by the scientists about what worry does. So don't worry, because it's not going to help you with anything. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Pray. Pray. Commune with God. Bring your requests before him. And he says, do it with thanksgiving. That's a key. You ever notice Jesus, when he would pray, he would give thanks. When he prayed at the tomb of Lazarus, he thanked the Father before he actually raised Lazarus from the dead. When he fed the 4,000, he thanked the Father before the actual fish and the loaves were multiplied. He was always giving thanks. I was reading Daniel. Daniel, it says in Daniel chapter 7 that Daniel prayed. And it says he, he went to, I'm sorry, Daniel 6. He went to a quiet place. He opened up his window that was directed towards Jerusalem. And then he prayed. And you know what it says? It says he prayed and he gave thanks to the Lord. He wasn't asking for anything. He just gave thanks to the Lord. Thanksgiving. Praying, praying with thanksgiving. So come to the Lord and pray with thanksgiving. And then notice verse 7. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ. When you pray to the Lord with thanksgiving, there is this supernatural effect of the peace of God that comes over your life. That's the shalom of God. That's, that's more than just, uh, I'm at peace. You know, I'm not worried about anything. That is wellness. Wellness of body. Wellness of mind. Wellness of spirit. All right, number five. Think and live. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Think, think about these things. Reflect on these things. Examine these things. 
Evaluate these things. Dig deep into these things. You know, Paul, obviously, I think the main, main thing that Paul is referring to here is meditate on the scriptures. But Paul was also somebody who was well-versed in philosophy. He had an understanding of the sciences. And he had an understanding of the culture and the politics of the time. But I think that, again, we are being encouraged here. The word is, the word we get logic from, okay, to meditate just think. Think about these things. The average American spends 28 hours a week watching television. And the average child in America spends 32 hours a week watching television. Do you know that your brains are less active when you're watching television than when you sleep? It's just mush. It's, it, 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 it's just mush. What is the, the, the passage? The passage is exhorting us, put on your thinking cap. Reflect, question, right? I mean, we are living in such an incredible time. You can, you can now go with just that little handheld device that you have, and you could listen to the greatest sermons, right, that have ever been preached and written. You can, I mean, you can listen to, to John Knox or to John Wesley or Charles Spurgeon or D.L. Moody's sermons. They haven't been around for hundreds of years. You, you can go and you can read the essays of Isaac Newton or Pascal or Copernicus. I mean, you, you can go and learn some of the greatest things about life, about health, about money about investing, about ministry, about life. We're, we're surrounded by these, by these wonderful ideas, these in, incredible concepts, these magnificent principles. But you've got to capture them. You've got to capture them. These great, these great concepts and principles are all around us. But you've got you to capture them. And you can capture the great thoughts of the theologians or the, or the scientists or the investors or the doctors. Instead of sitting in front of the television or surfing the internet with the most brainless, mindless nonsense that, that is totally useless and it's actually dangerous. And you look at some of the stuff that people are exposing, the, the filth. The, the, I mean, some of the, 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 the God, they're abominable to God. And yet we fill ourselves with those things. And then we wonder why our lives are the way they are. Why is my life the way it is? Thinking on what is true and honorable, praiseworthy, pure, that's life-giving. That's, that's so life-giving. It's given me life. And it's had such an incredible effect on everything. My health, my finances, my marriage, my family, my ministry, my careers. Last one, and we'll end here. Practice and live. 
Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. What is he saying here? He's saying practice. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? <laughs> That's been overused and oversaid. You really haven't learned anything until you do it repeatedly. Repetition is the mother of success. Look at how Jesus ended the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 21 through 23 of Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. It is the person who practices God's will. That's the person who hears it. It's the person who puts it into practice. Verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Church people! And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Notice that they were practicing, but they were practicing the wrong thing. And then in verse 24 through 27, therefore whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. The person who hears the sayings of mine and puts them into practice, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand, and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Practice. Repeat it over and over. It's, it's, it's again, it's the... Mother of success. It's how we grow. It's how we improve. When you, when you discover something of great value, discover something of great value, obviously so many things come to us through the word, through a sermon, through a song, through another person. You learn something of great value. You want to capture it. And you want to put it into practice. And what you do is you build your life upon those great truths and those great principles. I've given you a few today. The Word of God has given us a few today. Work ethic. Begin to work with a heart of excellence. Give whatever you're doing your very best. Practice until that becomes a habit. It can become a habit. I'll just tell you, tell you this. I refuse to do anything if I'm going to do it half-heartedly. And when somebody asks me to do something that I think I might be doing half-heartedly because I really don't want to do it, I say no. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Rejoice in the Lord always. Practice it until it becomes a habit. Practice the presence of God. Develop that awareness that, you know what, you're living in the presence of God. Think of this. Some of, some of you, you struggle with some really gross, disgusting sins. I have. Okay? You, know, you, you, you commit some sins repeatedly over and over again that are, are really appalling to God. And when you do it, right, think about this. You don't even think that you're in the presence of God when you do it, right? I'm talking to you from experience. I once was young, had a full head of hair, 
and had hormones galore bumping, pumping through my bloodstream. Okay? Didn't even think and consider that I was in the presence of God. You start cultivating the presence of God in your life. You become aware. Let me tell you something. When you go and you get tempted by the devil to sin, all of a sudden, why, everything changes. Pray with thanksgiving. Pray with thanksgiving and let the peace of God fill your life. Think. The sanctified mind, think. Think with that sanctified mind that the Lord has given you. The mind of Christ. And put it all into practice, right? Five things today. How different would your life be at the end of 2024 if you just begin to apply these five things? Right? You become, you become a practitioner. So I said my purpose was to inspire, to exhort, to encourage you to be a practitioner. You're going into 2024 real soon. It's coming soon. Quicker than you think. Christmas is going to be over. New Year's going to be gone. And you're going to be in 2024. Hopefully, God willing, go into 2024 as a practitioner. Make that commitment. When you, when you see that thing of value, when you grab onto it, you're not going to let it go. And you're going to put it into practice in your life. I always write them down. I am a notorious note taker. I've got notebooks all over the place. I've got no I've got notebooks in the spirit. I got my spiritual journals. I got ministry journals. I got investment journals, career journals, fitness journals. I've got and when I discover something new, and I'm telling you this, this is my life. I capture it. I write it down. And then I put it into my ultimate journal that I meditate on continuously. And I begin to practice those things and let them become habits in my life. Health, marriage, family, relationship with God, ministry, investing, business. Don't let them get away. They're gems. Amen? Let's bring up the uh, worship team. And let's have communion. stand, you can dance, you can boogie. You know, you can. If people are standing during worship, that's nice. Maybe you want to just sit and worship the Lord. You can do that. No rules. It's not state of the art, state of the heart. It's where your heart is at. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for going to the cross and dying for us. We thank you, Lord, 
the three nails, the crown of thorns, the cross on your back. For Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? For giving your life for us, Lord God. So we come to your table, Lord God, with joy, and we partake this morning. For on that day, Jesus, he took the bread and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take this, all of you, and eat this. He said, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me and in remembrance of our Lord Jesus' body that hung on that cross, that body that was taken down, limp, placed in the tomb. We partake. Then he took the cup and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this all of you and drink this for this is my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. He said, do this in remembrance of me and in remembrance of our Lord's blood, which was his life that he poured out for us. And you can take that life right into yourself right now. As you drink of the cup, take the life of the Lord into your heart by faith. Say to Jesus right now, Lord, Fill me with more of your life. More of your love, your joy, your peace. More of the life of the Spirit. Fill me, Lord. Let us all partake.